I want to talk today with you about your heart. Um, now, your physical heart is a fairly amazing organ, usually weighs less than a pound, but it's a real workhorse, is it not? Pumping about 100,000 times every day, pushing 2,000 gallons of blood through 60,000 miles of arteries, capillaries, and veins. That's your physical heart. But as a figure of speech, the Bible speaks about the heart of men and women and kids and everybody else as kind of the core element of their being. It's the place where you make decisions, place where you act out your desires. It's a place where you deliberate. We even speak about the heart of the matter, or I loved you with all my heart. We use the same metaphors they sort of used in Scripture. It is that heart, that core of our being that I want to chat with you today about. The professor at Yale, which we just heard from, by the way, it costs $80,000 a year to go to Yale. Uh, he's got some theories about happiness and stuff through the lens of personality and intelligence. So you can continue to get educated by him, borrow $320,000 or so to go to school there, get trained. Or we could just maybe delve into God's Word, which happens to be free, uh, which tells us all we really need to know about the conditions of our heart, which is derived really from what you make of Jesus Christ. And you get to make the call. Proverbs 4 says this, Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. According to the Scriptures, it's that core, that center of our being, mine and yours, that was affected by the fall of man back in the Garden of Eden. So now Jeremiah sums up in one sentence our hearts kind of as we come out of the womb. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, the answer to that question is God understands it fully. He knows exactly how bad it is. And in the paragraph we're going to look at today, God kind of shows us how bad it is. He deals with hearts in this first paragraph of John chapter 12. I've got up on the screen a picture of a brawl at a Costco center over a parking spot. The story I'm going to tell you is not about this brawl, but it just sort of illustrates kind of what goes on. Uh, an elderly woman was looking for a parking spot at a mall around Christmas time. She was in her Mercedes trolling for a spot. She sees a man walk out of the mall with his arms loaded with packages, and she decided, I'm just going to follow him to his spot. And she uh, did that, and then she waited for him to pack everything in the car. She sat there in the lane with her turn signal on, indicating that the, she was waiting for that spot. As the man pulled out of this, his spot, a young guy in a Corvette, brand new, comes speeding down the lane and pulls into the lane before she, in, into the parking, parking spot before she has a chance to. As you might suspect, she was not too happy. She actually pulled up, rolled down the window, and said to the guy, hey, I, I, I've been waiting for that spot for some, some time now. And he just smiled, grabbed his keys, and said, well, that's how it is when you're young and quick. That did not actually calm the situation down. <laughs> Instead, she floored her Mercedes and rammed it into the right rear fender of the Corvette. 
did no damage hardly at all to the Mercedes, did not make the uh, Corvette look better. He turns around and he screams at her, you can't do that. Well, she smiled and said, that's how it is when you're old and rich. Whether you're young or old, rich or poor, same truth kind of applies. Everybody on earth has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Both the characters in this little play did. <coughs> Some people live their whole lives with their hearts unchanged from the way they come out of the womb, unchallenged, unaltered, unsaved even. Others meet Christ, and when they do, they just discern that he changes them, starting with that salvation from the inside out, from the heart out. If we were to survey the various people we're going to read about in today's passage, we would discover some familiar faces around the table. There would be Jesus. He's the guest of honor. There would be Lazarus, just back from the dead, now eating a meal. There's Mary and Martha, the sisters, and there are the disciples who are following Christ. It's uh, one week before Christ dies on the cross. We also find outside the house a crowd of people who have gathered who are just kind of curious, maybe interested, maybe want to check out what's going on with Lazarus, how they heard the story. Some are regular people. Some apparently are some Jewish religious leaders. Now, if you could step into the hearts of all the people that are gathered around here that I just mentioned, you'd find different hearts. You'd find different motives. You'd find some good, some bad, some grateful, some greedy, some loving, some angry hearts opposed to Christ. All of them kind of circulating around the same meal. This is a meal then reveals the heart. So let's just read it together. John 12, first 11 verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, which is a town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's kind of over the Mount of Olives, about a mile and a half on the other side of that. Where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him in Perin, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So you see lots of hearts get revealed around this meal. I see kind of four dynamics we're going to talk about today. There are really diverse relationships. There's there's kind of a dangerous disciple There's some divine stewardship. There's also some diabolical censorship. These are the dynamics, and all four of them kind of play out in the various hearts of people who have gathered. Let's take them one by one. 
diverse relationships. <clears throat> there are people at this dinner who really did love Jesus, and they've gathered around the table inside the house. Uh, they're thankful, right? They're loving Jesus in their own unique individual manners. We're not told here, but there's two other gospel accounts uh, in Matthew and Mark that cover this meal. And one of them tells us that the house that this meal took place in was not the house where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live. text doesn't say which house it is in this particular passage, but in Mark chapter 4, we're told that this meal was taking place in the house of a man named Simon the leper. Not leopard, leper, right? Now I'm going to put a few things together. Given the fact that lepers do not eat in homes with people unless they are healed because of the contagion, right, that would spread. And given the fact that they are ostracized from society 2,000 years ago, I'm going to guess that this was a guy who is now an ex-leper. That this leprosy somehow was cured by Christ along the line somewhere. So this meal is at his house. Well, why? We don't know. Was it a bigger house, perhaps? I mean, there's a lot of people, at least 17 people Inside the house at this meal, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Simon the leper, right, Jesus, and then 12 disciples. That's at least 17. You're probably picturing that they sat around in tables and chairs, knives and forks like, like we do, right? That's because that's what we do. But 2,000 years ago in Israel, they didn't do that at all. They reclined at a meal that uh, is kind of a cool way to eat, honestly. I've done it when I've been in the Middle East. You lean on one side of a pillow around a table called a triclinium. It's kind of a U-shaped table. You're leaning on one side so that your right hand is free. Why? Because you eat with your right hand in the Middle East. Left hand is for other business. Right. Your feet are on the side, kind of to the back, and you're kind of leisurely leaning on and you're eating with your right hand. Uh, so I'll start with three people that we know love Christ. First is Lazarus. He sat. Second is Martha. She served. No surprise there if you know Martha. And there's Mary, she's pouring ointment on Jesus' feet. So let's zoom in on Lazarus for a second. Here, here's what I find interesting about Lazarus. Not once in Scripture is a record of any word that he spoke. Totally silent. I mean, he wasn't silent, but he, just no words that he spoke ever get recorded. Now, we know he talked. He was one of Jesus' friends. Jesus loved him. He loved Jesus. But no word of Lazarus is ever shown in the Bible. But once again, he's right here. They're having probably a great meal, great conversation, but not a word is recorded. And yet Lazarus is a witness. All he has to, be, to do to be a witness is just to sit there and munch on some food, right? He's a witness because verse 9 says there's a whole bunch of people who have gathered just to see him because he was this living testimony of the power of Jesus Christ to raise someone, I mean, from the dead, who was actually already in a state of decay. So can you imagine a conversation around the, the table? I'm going to guess Simon the leper says, Less, you, know, you know, Lazarus is a real drag being a leper. They kicked me out of society. Scabs grew over my body. I couldn't see my family. I was put away, really. I was smelly. I lost fingers, a feeling in my fingers and toes. Some of them began to fall off. I didn't even know it because I lost feeling. <laughs> my hair fell out. My eyebrows went away. And then one day, Jesus touched me. I reached up, and I could feel my eyebrows. My fingers came back. I had feeling in them. I was totally cured. It was awesome. It was awesome. But then Lazarus could have said, well, that's a great story. 
Pretty good story. But you know, I was uh, dead and decomposing in a tomb. And the next thing I know, I'm standing outside, totally healed, completely lifelike. Yeah, I guess my story takes the cake. I don't, know if, I don't know if Lazarus said that or not, but it would have taken the cake. I'm just guessing with some good food, good fellowship, good friends. We know Jesus was invited to all kinds of meals, so we know he loved to eat. Right? That's Lazarus. Second's Martha. You'll notice it says Martha served. Please don't fault Martha for doing this. I've read a lot of commentators and hear a lot of preachers, even people faulting Martha for always being on her feet, always serving, always busy. Um, my view, this is kind of what she loved to do. Put it into modern vernacular, this is kind of her love language. She liked to serve. She loved to cook. I can just imagine the night before, she was probably preparing all the meals, making all the menus, getting everything ready, fixed up in advance, so that on the day of this meal, she could bring meal after meal, course after course, and Jesus would have probably loved every one of them. But let's compare something. Let's compare this story with the one we saw when we very first got introduced to Martha. This is where she gets the bad rep from. Let's compare the two events. Going back to Luke chapter 10, Jesus enters a village, and a woman named Martha welcomes her into the house. Some months earlier, it's at, it's at Lazarus' house, Mary, Martha, that's where they live. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Jesus doesn't, doesn't well, he responds, but he doesn't respond like she wants him to. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So compare that with what we just read here in John chapter 12. In the intervening months, it seems something has happened. I'm guessing perhaps it was the conversation and then the ultimate resurrection of Lazarus that kind of got Mary's or Martha's attention. I'm guessing all the the lessons she learned from point A to point B here, seems like she's changed. She doesn't seem to be the same woman. First of all, she's not whining and complaining. And she's cooking for at least 17 people now. you got to give that to her, right? She's not complaining. Jesus is not rebuking her. She's still serving, but now it seems like with a whole different attitude. An attitude of gratitude. Kind of love is in her heart. She's expressing her worship of Christ through her work, through her service. I think that's important. If you, if you cook, if you do laundry, if you fix tires during the week, if you work at a desk job, All of those activities can become activities of worship if you have the right attitude, if you're not complaining, and if you're doing it as to the Lord. I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm I'm having him in mind as I'm doing this. It can be a form of worship. It can be just part of your relationship with him. I love the sign that one creative woman puts up on her kitchen sink that reads this, divine service rendered here three times daily. (laughs) She saw the meals that she cooks for her family as part of her worship of the Lord. So we got Lazarus, we got Martha. Now we got Mary. Mary busts out the perfume. She probably thought, man, I want to honor Jesus. I want to show him how much I love him, how much I'm grateful to him. 
uh, that he raised my brother from the dead, that he loves us as a family. I've got this perfume. It costs a ton. I'll get to that in a second. But I don't care how much it costs. I'm going to break it out, and I want to use it on Christ. So she pulls out their perfume. It's called the oil of spikenard, right? Let me explain what that is. Oil of spikenard actually comes from northern India, shipped 2,000 years ago in little alabaster boxes, sealed in, within, box, within boxes. The plant, the spikenard, was a plant that shoots out these fibrous roots about 3 to 12 inches long. Once the plant is rooted, it shoots these things out, and about 30 or 40 spikes come out of the ground. And when you walk along, you see them, right? And then if you pierce those little, little spikes uh, and extract the contents, what you get is a very sweet, spicy, musty kind of oil that was used typically by the wealthy, it was so expensive, for two things, for bathing and for burial. For burial, it would, it would help mitigate the smell a body would start to give off after a couple of days. Now, it's really costly. According to Judas... It could have been sold for 300 denarii. You saw that, right? Now, 300 denarii is what an average worker in that area would earn in a yeah, year. So let's just throw a figure out for the sake of argument. $30,000. That's the average wage of American workers, right? 30, 30 grand. And, Ju- and uh, Judas says, well, why don't we, just, we could have sold this for that much and given it to the poor. But no, Mary breaks it out. She pours it on Jesus' feet. She wipes it up with her hair. That was her gift. That was her relationship. That's what she did, not Martha. Martha's worship was perspiration. (laughs) It It was work. Mary's was perfume. She's into that stuff. Martha could probably not care a whole bunch about perfume. It was work, service, labor. That's fine. I think that's valid. Listen, I think both are valid. One's not right and one's not wrong. Both are valid and both are honoring Christ. So you get these three people with these unique individual relationships with Christ, all of which, in my view, are beautiful and valid. Here's my point. Uh, Shouldn't we not allow for differences that exist between one Christian and another, between one, one group and another group, in their relationship with Christ? Do we have to be so narrow in our thinking so what do we mean by narrow, Dwayne? Okay, well, church leaders can sometimes be narrow. Sometimes they can have conversations and it's sort of like, oh yeah, well, they go to this other church and they're, we're the better church. But our church is really the right church. Listen, I don't know if you know this, but there are really solid churches all around us here in Falls Church. There are some that call themselves churches that aren't really churches, but we have some really solid churches all around us. Across the street, there's a Baptist church, good church. Why can't we just realize that each church that's solid, that really believes the Word of God and is following Jesus Christ, is actually probably reaching part of the population. No church is probably reaching all the population. So how about we work together? How about we encourage each other? How about we team up, do that kind of stuff to actually reach all the people in Nova, rather than sort of work division-wise? Dividing like that, I think, is nonsense. And we can see it even inside churches. Like, for example, let's say that you are encouraged by God to start a prayer ministry here at the, at the Surge, or a service ministry, like the Panera Bread stuff, where we pick up Panera Bread and we deliver it to uh, local uh, shelters. You could think, because you're doing that, that that's really important. It may be the most important ministry in the church, and that everybody in the church should be doing that too with you. How about, maybe it's better, I think, to realize 
that God calls different people into ministry in different ways. Do we need people maybe to help with the kids? Yes. How about the teens? Yes. How about leading small groups? Yes. How about helping with the AV system? Yes. How about serving on the worship team? Yes. How about setting up and tearing down? Yes. So when people come to the church for the first time and they say, hey, what do you want us to do? I always say, okay, what is God telling you? What is your passion? Where is your heart being led to? Rather than trying to kind of pin, you know, pinhole them in some, some particular ministry. It could be, that, uh, could be that somebody's coming here for the first time and God's laid on their heart to do something that we're not even doing here, that we should be doing. And if I try to pinhole them over here to do this, maybe that would distract them from, distract them from doing the thing that God is actually wanting them to do here. So I think we can all experience the beauty of diversity that exists in this meal if we just real, if, as we're reading about it in John, and, we, and my, my thinking is, hey, what, why don't we do that here, too? <laughs> why don't we operate that way, too? Last time I checked, God loves diversity. Right? Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So why do we think when we see people get saved, we have to stick them in a mold and say, this is, this is your job? Um, that kind of thinking has people doing goofy things like this. Well, this is the version of the Bible you must now read. This is the music you must now listen to. This is the beat of the music you must now listen to. These are the clothes and the attire you should wear. <laughs> i tell you, my, my go-to translation is the ESV, English Standard Version. I can tell you why if you ask that I use it, but what I don't do is tell you that it should be your go-to version. Right? Even though I begin with the ESV when I'm doing my study, I check in a bunch of uh, translations, along with checking the meaning of the Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic words, trying to figure out what the exact meaning God intended when he had that uh, passage inspired through the work of people writing it down. So I think it's smart that we just allow Jesus to speak to people and direct people, and we should be okay with that. Our encouragement, as we preached on during our Better Way series we did a few months ago, is that you and I as Christians... We should be engaged with God. We should be engaged in following Jesus and taking our cues from him. And Jesus may send us someone, like I said, who may be wanting to start a ministry that God wants us to start here, but we don't have it now. So rather than pigeonhole people, let's allow God to move in them as he does and allow that to happen and have diversity expanded. Okay, second dynamic. There is, at this gathering, a dangerous disciple. Everything in the meal so far has been good. But then along comes Judas and kind of ruins the whole scene. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why is this ointment not sold and given to the poor? Right? The word for thief in that passage is the Greek word klepto. You can imagine what English word we get from that. <laughs> Kleptomaniac, right? It means somebody, and here's, here's what's interesting. The word klepto in Greek means this. It means somebody who steals, not just steals, but using a carefully thought out and devised plan in advance. It's like you're going to rob a house, you're casing the place. You're checking things out. You're seeing when they're there, when they're not, when they're awake, when they're not, all that kind of stuff. This is Judas. He's got it's all thought out in advance. It says, oh, he used to have charge of the money bag. 
and used to help himself to what was put in it. Now, chronologically, in the flow of time, these are the first words that we hear Judas speak in the New Testament. And on the surface, they actually could sound pretty good. Just a couple notes about Judas, a little profile. Judas was the only disciple that we know of that was not from the northern part of uh, Israel, up in the Galilee region. He was Judas Iscariot, which means he was from the town of Kerioth, which is down in Judah, not up, at, not up, up, up north. It's down around the area of Judah, Jerusalem, that area down south. Um, and whenever somebody wants to refer to Judas in the New Testament, they say two things about him. Number one, he was a disciple. Number two, he was a traitor. <laughs> he betrayed Christ. So, so heinous was his crime that it would be mentioned, those two things would always be mentioned whenever Judas's name would be, would be mentioned. And so, by the way, if you, if you look up Judas in the dictionary, you'll actually see that it's a, a synonym for treachery. A person can be called a Judas if he's a traitor in a friendship. Uh, it's entered the human language as a metaphor for, for that, for treachery or betrayal. This is why you probably don't see a lot of parents naming their child Judas, right? People have picked up on this, this bad meaning. It's also why you don't name your daughters Jezebel if you know your Old Testament history, okay? Uh, so, so here's the deal. His remark, as I mentioned, sounds kind of noble. It sounds like, you know, this may be the guy you went around. This is the guy who says, no, I'm just trying to save us a little money here so we can use it to help the poor. I'm all about doing that. But he was also a dangerous disciple, and John tells us why. Here's Judas, who misinterprets a gift. He sees it as extravagant or lavish or a waste of resources. He's got kind of a bitter view of life, bitter view of mankind. Maybe you know what it's like. If you really like somebody, they can do no wrong. If you have questions about them, they can probably do no right. Every little action is misinterpreted by, by you as some ulterior motive. Something else is going on. They're doing it for another reason. Something below the surface is working here. One commentator writes that you could follow Christ as a disciple for three years. You could see all of his miracles, hear all of his teaching, receive at his hand repeated kindnesses, and be counted even as an apostle. And yet you can also prove to be rotten in your heart at the end of it all. And the case of Judas shows plainly this can happen. You can appear to be a disciple, but be a very dangerous one. And this can happen when you try to follow Christ critically or hypocritically, critical to people, hypocritically before God. Judas had a good mouth, but a bad heart. Said the right things, and people go, whoa, this, this is good. He's trying to save us some, some dough. But unfortunately, he had an ulterior motive. Didn't care for the poor. He was a thief. And he routinely dipped into the money bag people would give and spend it on himself. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. You might recognize it. I'll paraphrase it for you. Jesus said this, Why do you care so much about the speck in your brother's eye when you got a telephone pole hanging out of yours? Right? That's a paraphrase, of course. You're worried about other people's issues or problems or activities or whatever when you've got actually bigger problems and much more serious problems that you've got to deal with on your own. Here's Judas, really critical, harsh towards others, but yet pretending to be sincere. When we get further into the Gospel of John, you're going to see Nobody knows. Nobody recognizes Judas as a potential traitor. 
it, they're totally baffled as to who might be the one who's going to betray Christ. No one goes, oh, yeah, let's, take, let's take a vote. 11, 11 of them don't vote for Judas. They, they all are stunned. Okay? Uh, I don't play golf. But I was watching a show about golf where a couple of pros were talking about clubs. And the one was suggesting this particular set of clubs because they were larger, had larger faces or whatever, and explained that these new drivers are, are more forgiving. They're bigger, so it's harder to miss the ball. And their sweet spot is larger, so even if you don't hit the ball right in the middle, uh, like maybe on the head or the toe or whatever, uh, you, you still get a good shot going. So I went out driving with my son-in-law down in Lynchburg. I don't care how large that club was going to be. I was awful. <laughs> I tucked it away, though. said, well, if they come up with a club that's got like this big, maybe, I'll, maybe that's one I get have a fighting chance. But anyway, more forgiving. But a more forgiving, bigger sweet spot? Wouldn't that be the way that we ought to describe a Christian? Their heart's so large, they just have this big sweet spot. They're more forgiving. Some people who name the name of Christ, their sweet spot is so small, it's almost indiscernible. It's not enlarged, it's not forgiving. That, that's really Judas. He's had a bad heart and selfish actions. Right? And it creates a dangerous disciple. The third dynamic you'll hear is divine stewardship. We got Jesus finally weighing in on this issue. He tells Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, those are good words to a critical person. You now have scriptural precedent, the words of Jesus. Leave her alone. Bug off. Go away. Let it go. First thing he does is affirm Mary. As it turns out, Mary's not going to be able to anoint Jesus' body after he dies. In fact, the women head to the tomb early on resurrection morning with some spices to anoint the body, but they'll discover he's already, he's already fled the coop. He's already resurrected. He's out of the tomb. He's, he's gone. So Jesus says this, She is doing this, washing my feet with his perfume. She saved this perfume for my burial. That's what he means. Judas, this is not a lavish or extravagant waste. This is a living prophecy. Mary knows something that appears to have escaped everyone else's attention. I am going to die and I'm going to be buried. It seems that Mary knew this was going to happen. And I contend that that's noteworthy, because even the disciples at large didn't seem to grasp it. Although Jesus has told them plainly at least three times, multiple occasions. And the last time he told them was on the way up to Bethany. He's going from, Jerusalem, from Jericho down in the valley. He's headed up to the mountain. He's headed up to the mountain. Uh, all their accounts tell us, and he, and he tells the disciples, boys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be buried. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. So how, how, how could they not get it? I don't know either, but they didn't. It just seemed to go completely over their heads. But Mary apparently did understand. The question is, why and how? Is it that Mary, of all the people, seemed to get it when so many others didn't. Here's maybe the secret. When you look at Mary and you look at Scripture, where do we always find Mary? At the feet of Jesus, in every single occasion. First time at the feet of Jesus, Luke chapter 10. 
Second time at the funeral of Lazarus, down at Jesus' feet, grieving, but she's at Jesus' feet. And the third time right here at this dinner, washing Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair. When you are sitting at the feet of Jesus and you observe and you listen and you study everything he says and see everything that he does, I think a special connection gets formed where you begin to understand his plan and his will. And you say, well, okay, Dwayne, that sounds cool. But Jesus is now gone physically. I can't sit at Jesus' feet today. But did you know, maybe you didn't, that sitting at someone's feet is actually a Hebrew idiom. To sit at someone's feet means to learn from that person, to be a disciple of that person, to listen to the words of that person. So when you are studying Scripture and you make it a daily activity where you're studying, you're reading, you're taking it in, you're sitting at Jesus' feet, and you will learn his ways and learn his will, and it will lead you to actions that you would maybe have gone over your head without that level of attention and devotion. So Christ affirms Mary. She's kept this for the day of my burial. And notice he also rebukes Judas. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. What does that even mean? Is he endorsing, is he endorsing poverty? Is that, what he's, is that what he's saying? Is he endorsing apathy towards those who are in poverty? No. First of all, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15, where it says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land, Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So what Christ is, is doing to Judas is setting forth a divine principle of stewardship. Here's what Jesus is espousing, if I may paraphrase. There will always be opportunities for some generous activity, but you've also got to seize the opportunities for personal intimacy with and communicating with, and hearing from, and learning from, being directed by Jesus himself. Now, what's interesting is Judas is not particularly interested in that, but Mary was. And because she was, she understood something that Judas didn't. Just as Jesus was going to be alive only one more week before his death and burial, Mary picked up on that. Mary takes action, sort of giving, if you will, the roses before the funeral, instead of waiting until bring them to the family afterwards, showing Jesus her love while he was still here. Likewise, you and I also have unique opportunities only afforded us in this life. We have to seize those opportunities. While we're on this side of heaven, this is the time to write checks, give money, do God's work, share our valuable possessions, time and resources to get the gospel out. This is our time for the opportunity we have to help people who are struggling to get into heaven, to know about Jesus Christ, share the gospel with them. One way to help people who are suffering because they want to know why you're helping. What prompted you to uh, reach out to me and, and help me out? And you'll get to say, oh, Jesus Christ did. That's why I'm doing this. He prompted me to do this. So as you evaluate your life and I evaluate mine, what value do we have that we could give to Christ for his honor and his glory now? According to Jesus, Mary chose wisely. My guess is so should we. Fourth dynamic, diabolical censorship. Last three verses, we find this. When the large crowd of the Jews 
learned Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. This was big news, big, big news. When was the last time a dead guy got up in your neighborhood? Probably never, right? And so these people at Bethany who saw this resurrection, they spread the news to everybody. So at this meal, a large crowd forms outside the house. And at this point, the camera pans from the house to the people outside. There was this group that's gathered around, looking in the windows, checking things out. There he is, he's eating, he's eating, he's really alive. I heard about this. There he is. And, we, and then we see this. When the chief priests see all these people milling about and kind of becoming uh, you know, overwhelmed with what's going on, they make plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. See how diabolical and sinister this is? Remember what Caiaphas said earlier? We talked about that earlier. Caiaphas announced to the council, you know, it's expedient that one person die so we can save our nation. Well, now it seems it's expedient to have two people die to save the nation. Because the greatest piece of evidence to the power of Christ that's causing all these people and all this uh, activity is that uh, they're, coming, they're coming to belief in Jesus because of uh, the resurrection. All this stuff's going on in Simon the leper's house. So if you don't like the results of the evidence that you've got, what do you do? You've got to get rid of the evidence. That's why witnesses are often killed before they can testify. <laughs> get rid of the witness, right? That's what they try to do here. So you've got all these various hearts at work in this one meal. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Judas, the indifferent crowd that's sort of scoping things out, the chief priests in the Sanhedrin who hate Christ so much they want to destroy the evidence, even of our resurrection. And I'm thinking, as if Jesus couldn't bring him back to life again. Okay, I'm thinking, should they consider that? I don't know. If I were to put all of what we read today, the study of hearts, down to one irreducible minimum, one bottom line, I would say this. You're going to find it almost, well, you will find it impossible to be neutral concerning Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, you're either for me or against me. You're either helping gather or you're scattering. Nobody's going to be on the fence. So today you might love him. You might serve him like Martha or Mary. You've got your own relationship, but it's real and it's dynamic. Or possibly you're a little bit more like the crowd, kind of looking in, checking things out. Wanting to maybe come to believe, but, you know, not so fast. You're going to make some decisions. You're going to con contemplate a little bit. Or maybe there's maybe there people here like Judas, religious leaders, willing to deny or betray or hate and want to do away with Jesus because he's getting in, he's getting in my face a little bit too much. Somewhere along the line, whoever you are, Everyone will make a decision regarding this person, Jesus Christ. You will make a stand about this one person, and it's that stand that you will take that will determine not his destiny, but yours and mine. Peter's also at this meal. In Acts chapter 4, he's going to announce this to the whole city of Israel, Jerusalem. For there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except for the name of Jesus. So, how's your heart? How's your heart? The Bible says this. You remember it from earlier in the passage. Keep your heart with all diligence, vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's your core. 
That's your center. That's who you are. That's the authentic you. Where is that heart with God? If we understand that the Holy Spirit of Christ lives personally in our hearts, that we were once dead spiritually when we entered this world, but have been brought to life spiritually, shouldn't it make a difference in how we walk on this planet? Shouldn't all that we do, shouldn't all that we think, shouldn't all that we say, shouldn't all of our motives and aspirations and desires be consistent with and flow from Jesus' life now coursing through our life? If that happened, how would we be different? How would we see others around us so differently? Maybe we ought to pray for that because that was the dream outcome of the Better Way series that we did to be engaged with Jesus moment by moment, to drive us to want to be engaged with him moment by moment. And that might give us some things to ponder as we take communion. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to bring the the stuff up for communion and we'll do that and get you guys out of here. God, thank you for this word which can challenge us but also enrich us. We know that in you, there's going to be a day when you're going to call us out of the tomb. You will resurrect us, just like Lazarus. And so we have that kind of hope for Mark as well. We'll be joining him. We'll be there. He'll be there. You'll be there. And it will be a fantastic party. So handle our grief, our pain, through it during this time. We thank you for it. It is Thanksgiving. Why not thank you for being our God, for loving us when no, one, no other God does? No other God has done what you've done for us to prove your love for us. So as we take communion, we honor you. We glorify your name because you died on a cross for us when you didn't have to. You wanted to for us. You saw us coming down the stream of history and said, I want to die for these people sitting in this building right now. I'm going to go to the cross 2,000 years ago to pay for them because I'm going to be in eternal bliss with them at some point. So thank you, God. As we take communion, touch us, move us, shake us up a little bit, convict us, change us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.